Hello and welcome to True to the Bible podcast with Hunter Davis. Thanks for joining us for this lesson in our series, Who I Am, where we'll be studying the book of John and where we see that John is writing these things to everyone so they might believe and that in believing they might have life. In this awesome book where John presents the Messiah Jesus as God, we'll see lots of key truths and great application that we can apply to our own life. Well, thanks again for joining us. We hope that you enjoy this lesson. Today we're going to be talking about the fourth sign. We've had three other signs so far. Who can remember what the first sign was? The first sign of the book of John. The wedding, not the performance of the wedding, but the the watering and wine. Pike came back from Sunday school yesterday, and or not yesterday, last Sunday, and he had a little jar craft that could turn red to blue and blue to red. He was like, "Look, Dad, surprise!" and like turned it to red. So he just went over water and wine too. All right, what was the second sign? This is the hardest one. The official son, uh, healing of the official son, long distance healing. What was the third sign? Paralytic. Paralytic. Yeah, she got to it before you. Paralytic, uh, 38 years, paralyzed, or we don't know if he was paralyzed, but he couldn't move. Okay, so some sort of illness for 38 years, uh, and he was healed. And today we're going to look at the fourth sign, which is a very popular sign. So we're going to go ahead and read the first 14 verses of John chapter 6. And uh, then we'll get into it. John chapter 6, verse 1. Excuse me, verse 1. It says, After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him, because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a large crowd uh, was coming to him, he said, Philip, Where are you to buy bread so that these may eat? He was saying this to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him and said, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to even receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. What are these for so many people? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there is much grass in the place, so the men sat down, the number about five thousand. And Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had filled, or when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered up them up and filled twelve baskets of fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. All right, let's pray. Dear God, we just come before you and thank you for this day you've given to us. Let's pray today as we look at your word, uh, that we would look at it um, and be um, encouraged or convicted as needed, God. I pray that we would see who you are and recognize that uh, we should run to you in the circumstances and trials of life. Um, we love you, and we pray all this through Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so today uh, we're going to see a few things about Jesus through this miracle. And uh, there's probably a lot more that we could see about him through it. But if you remember, John's writing this book so we can see who Jesus is so that we might believe in him for eternal life. And so we're going to see three things about him. 
uh, that I think can help us even as believers uh, run to him in trials or in tribulations or just in times of life when we need him. Uh, just the truths about him that we need to keep on our mind, I think. But first, as we're going through this, I want to kind of look at, I don't know if you call it the geography, but just kind of look at what's going on here. It's in verse 1. Look at it again. It says, after these things, and the first thing we need to ask ourselves is what things um, are we talking about here? What things are we talking about here? Well, this is, uh, this is, this is a couple maps here okay, that we have going on. I'm going to use the one on the right. But... Uh, We've seen in John, he skips around and leaves a lot of times, like time breaks in between his chapters. So remember we talked about how he spent time here, and then it talks about him traveling down to Jerusalem. He spends time there, and then talks about him traveling up through Sakaar, and, and all this down, up, down, up. And um, basically between uh, John 5.47, when he's talking to those people, those Jews, remember that's right after this other sign. And where was that sign performed? Anybody remember? The third sign, the sign of healing the paralytic? It's a very popular architecture. Or architecture. Was it the Pool of Bethsaida? Yes, and that was near Jerusalem. They, were, they, were, uh, they think it was in Jerusalem, okay? And so he, he was traveling down to Jerusalem, and then sometime while he was there, he performs his third sign. Um, now it says in verse 1, after these things, Jesus went up to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So these things would have been whatever he's doing in Jerusalem there, the miracles that he's uh, performing. And we know he's performing a lot because by the time he gets up there, there's a crowd of 5,000 people following him, or 5,000 men following him. We don't know how many people, uh, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But he's doing a lot of things, okay? Doing a lot of miracles, proclaiming who he is, um, making religious leaders mad, that, that sort of thing. So anyway, he travels back up to the Galilee. So Galilee on the left map is, I don't know if you can see it, but it's that orange section there, even on the other side of the Sea of Galilee really could count as that. And so this is a zoomed in version. And so when he says he went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, okay, he's talking about this eastern side here, which is a more desolate, more mountainous. Uh, it's kind of all mountainous. We'll talk about it in a little bit, but he's coming over here to this side instead of this side. Uh, you know, this is where he does the water and the wine. He's been over here a lot in John. Uh, now he's going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. This is a uh, Constable, I was just reading some stuff on him, and he says after an undesignated amount of time, which I think that time could be up to six months in between verse fifty or forty-seven and verse one. Um, Wilkin, Bob Wilkins says it, it was six months. That's what his his estimation was. But after an undesignated amount of time, Jesus traveled to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. That was more sparsely populated side where fewer Jews and more Gentiles lived, and it was uh, particularly the northeast coast that he went. So he goes to this northeast coast, and there's this crowd falling. Look at verse 1 again. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, which some people call it the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he's performing on those who are sick. So these things are the signs that he's performing on the sick, uh, on the sick people. Okay, and this many people, um, like this is an extraordinary amount of men. Okay, there's a lot of people. Back in those days, towns weren't as big as they are today. Uh, they didn't support as many people. So 5,000 men would seem even more then than it was now. There are estimates on how many people were actually there because it says there's 5,000 men. Okay, so some people estimate 20,000 people were there. That I think that would be on the very high end because, I mean, every man had a wife and two kids with him. Um, but either way, it could be between 5,000 and 20,000 people following him at this point. Now, we don't know where these people are from either, which is interesting uh, because they... 
did they could have followed him all the way from Jerusalem. Okay? So they could have followed him all the way up, which seems kind of unlikely. Uh, but maybe some of them followed him up. They could also be from the Sea of Galilee area, like Cana, Capernaum, all those town Nazareth, all those places. Um, they, so they could have been there and like followed him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We're just not sure like who these people are. They're Jews. We'll see that later on. Um, but they follow him. So he's got this huge crowd. He goes to the other side. In verse 3 it says, He went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And the Passover feast was near. Okay, and so I want to look at the Sea of Galilee for just a few minutes here. Okay, first he sits down. Okay, and I've said this a bunch, but uh, back then teachers used to sit down, and the people would stand up while teaching was going on. Okay, and that doesn't seem like a big deal, but here in a minute it actually is a big deal in this passage. Okay, because we're going to see what Jesus says to the people. But um, I thought about today just bring a chair up here and having you guys stand the whole time, but I decided not to. So anyway, uh, I kind of want to. What I want to do. Hopefully, this is a little fun for some of you. Uh, some of you may not be, but I want to look at the Sea of Galilee for a little bit. Okay, and I got some pictures. There's not a lot of good pictures of Sea of Galilee, but it's a really cool place, and I want I want you guys to see it so you can like put yourself there. Like put yourself in the place. So this is a few facts about the Sea of Galilee. This is the Sea of Galilee on the right. That's the shape of it. That's obviously an aerial view. Um, that's when everything's dead. There's two seasons on the Sea of Galilee when everything's super green and then when everything's kind of dead. And it's just kind of like Oklahoma, except Oklahoma, it's like it's green for a little bit in the spring, a little bit basically in the spring, that's it, because then it's so hot it dies and it's so cold it dies. But uh, it's kind of like back and forth here, green or brown. And so this is the, obviously the aerial view when it's brown. It's actually the lowest freshwater lake on the earth. Okay, and we're talking about altitude here, so it's below sea level. And it's the lowest one on the earth. And it's the second lowest lake on the earth. Anybody know what the lowest one is? It's just south of this one. Dead Sea. It's the Dead Sea. Okay, so that's the lowest is the second lowest overall. And the Dead Sea obviously is salt, so that's why it's not the lowest freshwater. Uh, it's about 13 miles long, 8 miles wide, has about 40,000, almost 41,000 surface acres. Average depth is 84. Just so you guys get an idea, uh, I got some stats on some Oklahoma lakes. Okay, how many of you guys know Lake Texoma? What that is okay so just brent and molly that's good okay okay and then what about keystone lake all right almost everybody and then mcmurtry you guys all know mcmurtry lake right okay so these are to scaled sizes now lakes in oklahoma are, are a lot of times man-made okay i don't know if these are man-made or not brent probably knows but a lot of times they look a lot different than the sea of galilee so i've circled going from left to right lake texoma the Sea of Galilee, Lake Keystone, and then McMurtry is this tiny one. Okay, and they're all to scale. Okay, and so Texoma is actually bigger than the Sea of Galilee. Okay, if you're thinking about size, like surface area. Okay, it, uh, it's 88,000 uh, acre surface area, and the average depth though is only 30 feet. It's like the Sea of Galilee is very deep. Okay, it's like this, and and we'll talk about it in a second. But basically, it's like got these mountains if you can picture it, and then it like goes down into this bowl. Okay, and the Sea of Galilee's in a bowl, and then the Sea of Galilee's deep too, especially for the surface area. Okay, so Keystone Lake, it's like half the surface area of Sea of Galilee, it's 23,000 acres, and its average depth's only 23 feet. And then the lake that we all know, Lake McMurtry, it's only 1,000 square acres. Okay, so the Sea of Galilee's like, you know, way bigger than that. It's, uh, and the average depth is only 17 feet at Lake McMurtry. So when you're thinking of a lake, you think of a very round, pristine looking lake. Okay, like the lakes up in Colorado that you see that has very deep and kind of is that shape that we saw, if I can go back, that shape of like an oval. Okay, so this is what the lake looks like. So you can picture yourself out there. I have a couple pictures of it. Okay, this is kind of in the dead season. 
You can see the lake out there. See how that you're, they're up on top of a hill and it goes down and altitude a lot down to the lake. There's another one looking, I think, towards the east. It's from west to east. You see that mountain over there, that hill. Could have even been one of the hills, the hills that he was on. I don't know. This is, I just got this one again. It's not a great picture, but this is the color of the grass whenever um, the spring, their spring or whatever is there. That's a really cool picture. I just liked it. That's the Sea of Galilee. And then that's the water. You can see it's that nice blue colored water. Uh, it's the Jordan River is what runs into it and out of it. Um, and so it gets all its water from there. It's really cool though. It's a really cool place. So he's on the east side of this body of water right here that we still have today. Um, and it's not a very popular place necessarily. Um, but because of so many things he's done, it's now a very populated place because there's 5,000 extra men over there with him. And he, uh, and he sits down. So when he sits down, uh, you know, that tells people like, he's getting ready to teach us. And if you remember, you guys remember the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew? Anybody? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about, Sermon on the Mount. So Sermon on the Mount, he goes up on the mountain and he sits down. And he teaches his disciples saying, and there's a bunch of people other than his disciples there. So he sits down signifying that he's going to teach, uh, but he actually doesn't end up teaching right away. And so look at verse 5. It says, Therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing a large crowd coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that so many will eat, or that these may eat? And he was saying this to test him. Okay, so the first thing I want to know, I want us to look at about Jesus is he's the tester. And this might not be the very, like the great verbiage or whatever, uh, but he's a tester. And God, we know that God tests people and he tries people. And Jesus tests Philip here. And the reason this is important is because um, sometimes in life we're tested and we, and we go through trials. And some of them, we'll talk about this in a minute, but some of them are from God, some of them are not. But God knows our trials and our testing. And the first thing I want to do really is I want to look at the difference between a test, a trial, and a temptation. Okay, so turn your Bibles to James. Okay, turn your Bibles to James because we're going to look at the difference. And James is a really good spot to do that. Okay, some of you know James really well. Uh, you know, Zayden knows it really good. Uh, he really loves James. <laughs> but uh, we're going to look at the difference in testing, trials, and temptation here. And this Greek word, if you guys want to do it later... Okay, you don't, we're not going to go into it right now, but you should go back to the Greek word for trial in James, and you can look up what that word means. And almost every time, it means temptation or trial. And I think it could be translated temptation or trial or both in several of these spots. Okay, but uh, that's for another time. So look at James 1 verse 1. It says, James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the twelve tribes who are in dispersed, or in dispersion abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face various trials. That word can be trials or temptation or both, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let that endurance have its perfect result, so you may be perfectly and completely lacking in nothing. Scroll down, or, or flip down, or look down. Sorry, scroll, I scroll to verse 13. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted i am being tempted by god for god cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust and then when lust conceives it gives birth to sin and when sin is accomplished it brings forth death so the reason this is important is because we see differences here in temptations and trials and i have a little slide for you okay a test okay whenever you're test a test is when you have to trust god Okay, we see that with Noah, we see that with Abraham, we see that in James, 
We say all over the Bible, a test is when you have to trust God. Now, a test can come from a trial, or it doesn't necessarily have to. Okay? A trial is when circumstances are hard. Okay? A trial is when circumstances are hard. All of us have probably been through trials. Um, we talk about trials all the time because life is filled with trials. But trials are when circumstances are hard. Okay? Both of those first two, God can allow or cause in your life okay? for good. Okay? The third one, He cannot. It is temptation. This is when you are drawn to sin. It doesn't mean you sin, but it's when you are drawn to sin. Okay? It's the feeling or the, the something inside of you, the pool, when you're like, I desire to sin. I see it. I want it. Okay? That's what temptation is. So there's a difference in t- testing, trials, and temptation. And I have this uh, other slide for you, uh, and I apologize for how crude it is. But this is the way I look at it. Okay? If a test or a trial is the big blue circle, then the little triangles are uh, tr- um, temptations. Okay? Because within every trial and almost every test, there's always temptation that comes. And so like when James is saying, he's like, hey, count it all joy when these trials come. Okay? Because it, the, if he is saying trials in verse 2, various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance... Well, if your faith is being tested, is there a temptation there? There is a temptation. There's a temptation to not trust God because of the test. Right? And so you're tempted in trials. Okay? Now, if we go back, okay, we're not spend, again, we're not spending a lot of time on that. Uh, we can go through James some other time, but because I love it. But when Jesus tests Philip here, okay, you could say it's a test, you could say it's a trial. I mean, I'd probably lean more towards test. But is there a temptation for Philip? I mean, I would guess yes. Okay, there's a temptation because there's a test here. There's a test to either trust in who Jesus is or who he's not. Okay, and so Philip, he's been with Jesus since when? We went over it a long time ago. Wasn't that before the wedding? Yeah, it was before the wedding. He was one of the first five, right? That, as far as we can tell, he was one of the first five with him. So he's been with him through all this. Okay, he's, he's seen the wedding at Cana. Okay, he's seen the miracles along the way. He saw the paralytic healed. He saw the son healed. He saw all the things that we haven't got in John, but that are in Matthew and Luke and Mark. He's seen all these things happen. He's been with Jesus, and he and he believes that he's the Messiah. We went over that a long time ago. Okay, so he's seen all this stuff, and now Jesus says, "Philip, where do you think we can get bread for five thousand men?" Okay, and whether Philip is like just not thinking about it or not. Um, I don't know if his, his answer is not bad, but it's not like the best, right? Because I probably would say the same thing Philip did, but I feel like Philip should say, well, God, I mean, do whatever you want. Just make some bread, right? But up to this point, we don't know if Jesus has ever created anything in front of his disciples yet. And we're going to see that that's a big part of this. Um, he creates something out of nothing. So Jesus tests him. Okay, we're going to look at his response in a minute, okay? But he tests him. Um, so the question I have for you guys, just kind of going back to the testing and the trial, is why does God test us or why does God allow trials in our life that aren't self, um, self-inflicted? Because are there trials in our life that are not from God that we just inflict on ourselves? Yeah, right? And, and there's, uh, there's also discipline of the Lord, okay, which I wouldn't put it in the same bracket as a trial. It could be, I guess, but discipline of the Lord. There are natural consequences when we do things wrong. 
Uh, and then there's when we're just don't make the wisest choice and we just do something stupid and we get trials that way. But then there's these other trials that just like come into life like for no reason, right? Have you guys ever felt that or been there? It's like why, like why is this happening? Like what? Why is this happening to me? I don't understand it. And these are the ones that were like, okay, why is God allowing this? Or why is this test or this trial coming up in my life? So there's three things that I think of uh, for this. Three, three, three reasons God could test us or try us. Okay, first off, we'll see in a second, but does he already know? Does he already know what, we're, what our response is? Yes? Why does a teacher give you a test? To see if you get it right. To see if you get it right. To, uh, to know how much knowledge you have, correct? Okay, Why? Because the teacher doesn't know how much knowledge you have. So therefore, they test you to see where you're at. Correct? Does God need to test us that way? No. So it's a different kind of test. Okay? We know that already because God already knows where we're at. So he doesn't have to test me to see, okay, what's Hunter's response going to be? He knows. So why does he test us? The first thing that I think of is so that we know. Okay? So that we know where we're at. Okay? And this can be for the good or for the bad. It can be, Hunter, I'm testing you so you see... So, you guys all know I used to struggle with anger, okay? Especially when I was you guys' age. And last Thursday night, I, uh, I'm a Chiefs fan, and the Chiefs played football, okay? And I didn't get to watch the game because I had to work. And so, the way I tried to compensate for that was I turned the game on on my phone because I can watch it for free through, like, some app. So, I turned the game on on my phone and, like, stuck it in my pocket and then put my earphones in and tried to listen to it as the game was going on. I don't know if this is a test from God or not, but my internet was terrible. I had full bars, but man, it kept buffering and buffering and buffering. And the, the, the climax of the whole story is the Chiefs got a 99-yard interception touchdown uh, that was awesome. So they're about to score. I mean, the Chiefs get this interception. They run it 99 yards and get a touchdown. And it was just like a commercial. It's like I hear it start to happen. I pull my phone on and you just see. And then it comes on and it's commercials. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And I was so mad. And what I learned is I still have a little room to grow with my anger management because I, it shouldn't have made me mad, but it did. And sometimes God gives us trials to show us, hey, like you still need to work on this in your life. You know, you still need to work. And maybe that's what he's doing to Philip. Maybe he's saying, Philip, are you serious? And we'll see. Actually, is it in John? I just thought this just now. But later on, it is in John. Later on, uh, way down the road, Jesus taught, is talking to the disciples. And Jesus is like talking and talking. He's like, hey, I'm going to the Father. And, uh, and they're like, why are you going to the Father? And they're, just, they're so confused. And then Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father. And uh, John's like, I mean, sorry, Jesus is like, are you serious? Philip, you've been, and he, said, he literally says, you've been with me this whole time? I'm the father of one. And he doesn't say I'm the father of one right there, but like he said that throughout. He's like, are you serious, Philip? And so maybe he's kind of trying to get Philip to see more right here. Like, you need to understand who I am, Philip. Okay, I'm not just some guy that heals sick people. Like, I'm God, and I can do anything. And so maybe that's what he's doing here. We don't know. Another reason that we, uh, that we see God giving us trials or tests is so that other people see it. Okay? The big, greatest example of this is Abraham. It says that God tested Abraham when he was going to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, right? Okay? And so he tested Abraham again. He knew what Abraham was going to do. And I think it showed Abraham something. But for 
4,000 years, people have been reading about that test and seeing the faith of Abraham, and they have been inspired by it. So sometimes I think tests and trials can help other people. Our tests and trials can help other people because they can see the faith, you know, and they can see God working, and they can see these things happening. And then the third thing, um, again, these aren't, this is not all encompassing or anything, but the third thing, just prepare us for the next trial. Okay, because, again, God doesn't give us every trial. And God in His all-knowing wisdom <laughs> knows that, you know, in 2025, Hunter's going to do something really dumb. And he's going to have a trial that's going to be produced from his own self. And in order to prepare him for that trial, I'm going to give him this trial. So he trusts me more in that trial. And I've seen that in my own life. Of where, like, there's been something, a trial that's come up in my own life, and, like, I don't know why it's there or where it came from. But then later on down the road, I have a similar trial, and it it may have been birthed out of my own stupidity, but I can see how that trial before helped me with the future trial. And so there are three good reasons, three reasons why God could test us or try us. All of them are out of love. Again, not all trials and tests are from God, okay? But God can and does give us tests and trials from love. And I think this is important to note, because I think if we look at Jesus here, like he's doing this out of love for Philip, and I think if we go through trials in our life or tests in our life, if we don't know that God prepares us for those, that God loves us in those, especially the ones that aren't you know, discipline or consequences, we don't know that God does that out of love, then it's a lot harder for us to run to Him in the trial. Because if, if I think the trial, like, He's doing it out of hatred, or like, he does it because he doesn't care about me. Like, he gave me this trial because, like, obviously he doesn't care about me because he's giving me this trial. Then I'm not going to run to him in the trial. Okay? Um, and we should run to him in the trial. And really, <laughs> it's the good thing about the disciples here, of course, they're right here with him. But, you know, they go to him. They're like, well, I don't know where we're going to get food. Jesus, where are we going to get food? And that's the right place to go, right? Philip didn't run off to the city and try and buy food. Uh, he, he went to Jesus. He's like, Jesus, you, you know, you're the one, so show me how. Guys, the second thing I want to look at, we're going to look at it very briefly, um, just because I think it goes along with this, and I think it's in verse 6. Look at it. It says, This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. And I, I think John puts this in here, this little phrase, for he himself knew what he was intending to do, because John is trying to show Jesus as who? Awesome. We're going to have to go back to the very beginning. Okay? God. As God. Okay? He's trying to show Jesus as God. Right? That's the theme that we see here. And so many places in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, it's assumed that we understand who God is. But here he's showing Jesus as God. So he says, he already knows what he's going to do. He already knows this and that. He's testing him. He's got this understanding already. If you think about, um, well, Abraham. Okay? God knew what he was going to do with Abraham's situation, sacrificing Isaac, right? Yes or no? Yeah, nothing, none of that caught him by surprise. But the author doesn't say, God knew before. It's assumed, right? It's assumed that we know that. Um, we talked about Moses uh, on Wednesday nights, right? And that's a really interesting intercession there. There's a lot of things that go into that. But uh, he says, I'm going to start over with you, Moses. Does God know that he's not going to start over with Moses? Yeah, he's, I, I kind of think he's testing Moses there, but that's a whole other thing. But he knows he's not starting over with Moses because he knows Moses' response, right? But he's, 
testing Moses. That's all assumed, though, in the passage because it's talking about God, and we know who God is. But John is trying to show that Jesus is God. And so I think he throws us in there saying he knows everything. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what he's going to do. Okay, he's not asking Philip this because he's unsure of what to do. He's asking him because it's a test. We know who Jesus is, okay? And so I think that's a little bit of a, I don't, I don't know. That's just to me, it's like, why would he put that in there other than that? And so anyway, Jesus knows uh, what he's going to do. He actually already knows Philip's res- uh, answer and what he's going to say and all that stuff. And I think that should give us comfort just because God knows us, right? He created us. He created us in our mother's womb. He knows us. He knows how we're going to answer. He knows what he's going to do. Okay, he already, he knows he has what he's going to do already set. He already knows it. Okay, so we don't have to worry um, in our trials and in our tests that you know we're going to surprise God in any way, shape, or form because we're not. Jesus wasn't surprised by Philip's answer. He wasn't surprised when he suddenly made bread. Like he knew all this stuff was going to happen. Okay, um, and sometimes you know I I hear a lot of things about like this statement, but like. I hear people say he doesn't put us through stuff that we can't handle, you know, and I don't think that's true. Okay, I think that he doesn't put a, put us through things that we can't handle with his help. Okay, which is really important. Okay, I think he does put us through things that we can't handle, because he puts us through things that we can't handle to show us we can't handle them, and we have to rely on him, right? But Jesus knows, and God knows what we can handle, and He knows what He's capable of, which is everything. And he knows how he's going to get us through each trial, each temptation. And, and he provides, which is the next one. He provides. Um, he provides in temptation, right? He, he's the, uh, what is it, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that says he'll provide a way of escape in temptation. So he provides in temptation. He provides in trial. And he provides here. And this is a, the reason this is one of the signs is because it's a huge miracle. Um, but we'll look at that when we get to it. Verse 7 is where we're going to start here because this is Philip's answer. Hey, Philip answers and says, Hey, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, not for everybody to receive a little bit. Okay, and so this is important because he's like, Jesus, we don't have enough food to buy, or enough money to buy. And uh, he calculates really quick in his mind and says, Hey, it's going to take eight months' wages to feed them, and that's not even going to feed all of them. Okay, now eight months' wages today, if you take the average amount that a household makes, or uh, an individual, I think, makes, That'd be $58,576. So Philip says, 60 grand isn't even enough to feed these if we just gave them bread. Okay? That's a lot of people. It's a lot of money. Okay? He says, that's not enough. Okay? So then another disciple comes on the scene. This is verse 8. It says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. What are these for so many people? Okay? And so he says, Hey, there's a young boy here. Young boy could be anywhere to mid-20s or early 20s. So this boy here, he's got five loaves and two fish, which seems like a lot, but it's, you know, if it's a high school boy, I mean, you're going to eat a lot. So five loaves and two bread, or five loaves and two fish. And um, it's interesting that he says barley loaves here. Okay, I think this tells us a little bit, it's a sidetrack, but it kind of tells us a little bit about who the boy was, um, which is interesting. Okay, uh, barley loaves are what poor people and peasants ate. Okay, I have a couple of um, quotes for you uh, from Philo. You guys ever heard of Philo? He's like an old Jewish historian, dead obviously, a long time ago. And then Josephus. You guys heard of Josephus? Okay, he's a lot more popular Jewish philosopher, or Jewish uh, historian. 
So this is what Philo says about barley bread. He said it was suited for irrational animals and people of unhappy circumstances. So he said, if you're a normal person, you're not eating barley bread. You're eating wheat bread. Okay, and this is Josephus. Uh, it says barley bread was the staple of the poor in Roman times. So this boy was obviously a poor boy. Okay, and he's here and he's offering uh, his, his food, okay, which is a big deal for a poor boy. Right? And so he's offering this food. And um, Andrew kind of, I don't, I don't know if he's scoffing at him or like, he's like, or if he's just like, hey, like, well, this is what we have, but it's all we got. But, you know, this is barely going to feed this kid, you know, that's growing, let alone 5,000 men plus, you know, however many women and children. I don't think it's really, uh, it's really enough, Jesus. So then we have this verse 10, okay? And this is really interesting. I've said that about like almost everything today. But this is really interesting. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, if we just run through this, that's, that doesn't matter. Okay? It says, have people sit down. That does not matter if you just run through it. But it does matter. Because what do we say at the very beginning? When Jesus teaches, what does he do? Sit he sits down and they stand up. So him sitting down is telling his disciples, I think, I'm getting ready to feed these people. Because they sit down for to eat. Okay, they don't sit. They don't stand up to eat. They sit down to eat, and they stand up for teaching. He says, "I'm going to teach these people right now. I'm going to feed them." So I think that's kind of cool. He says, "Have them sit down. I'm going to feed them." Um, that's just that doesn't really matter, but it's kind of cool. Uh, and then he says, "Now there was much grass in that place." Okay, this is another picture of the Sea of Galilee um, when it's green. Okay, it's a little bit better picture. And so you can just picture Jesus up on one of these hills like this, and there's five to twenty thousand people out there. Okay, Jesus must have a really good voice, by the way, mm-hmm. like, to be able to talk to these people. But uh, he's up higher, I think, than they are, which helps. I, I picture Jesus kind of looking out over the Sea of Galilee, that beautiful view, and then just people scattered all out throughout the hills. Okay, and they're all kind of coming toward him, and they all kind of get there. They're standing. He's sitting down in teaching position. He says, have these people sit down in this nice green grass. Because that's what it says. It says there's much grass in that place. Okay, so it's, it's grassy time. It's green time, right? So they sat down, about 5,000 of them. Okay, then Jesus, in verse 11, he took the loaves, having given thanks. um, He distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish, as much as they wanted. Okay, so, you know, in other, there's multiple feeding of the the thousands, right, throughout Scripture. There's a couple of them that he does. Uh, It doesn't say in this one he tears it up. I don't know if he's tearing it up and putting it in baskets or tearing it up and giving, but basically he starts handing it out. And he's like, all right, I have five loaves and two fish. Here you go. All right, now I have six loaves and two fish. All right, here you go. Not, you know, or what, he, he never runs out. He's like, oh, well, I still have it. Passes it out. We don't know if his disciples are passing it out or if he is, but between them, they pass it out between everybody. And everybody's eating, and everybody eats, and then there's still food left over, which is crazy, okay? Um, which is what we'll talk about in just a second. So look at verse 12. It says, when they were filled, he said to his disciples, go gather the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. Interesting point there, too. Um, we're not going to talk about it, but Jesus doesn't waste anything. Okay, That's something you can study on your own or look at. So they gathered, in verse 13, them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. So they filled 12 baskets from the, the amount that couldn't even probably fill one basket. Okay, Just from the leftovers. Okay, and, there, and it says in verse 14, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So he performs a miracle. This miracle shows us a lot of things. Number one, it shows us that he has power over quantity. That he has power over quantity. 
Okay, he's not limited by amounts, okay, or sizes or things like that. Okay, he's not limited in that way. It also shows that he can provide. Okay, it shows he can provide. Right? It shows him as the ultimate provider. And like I said before, he does provide. He provides in our trials. He provides in our temptation. He provides in our everyday life. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. That's James. It also shows us one more thing that we haven't seen yet. Okay? It shows that he can provide new matter. This shows that Jesus is creator. Okay? Because changing the water into wine is exactly that. It's changing something. Right? Miracles... He's changing things, changing um, the inner part of people, yes. But up to this point, at least in John, we have not seen him create new matter. And he does here. He makes new matter. Who's the only person that can make new matter? Jesus and God. Say it again, everybody. Okay, Jesus and God. God is the only one that can make new matter. And he makes new matter here. Okay, because he only has five loaves and two fish. Where does the rest of the matter come from? And I'm, you guys know what I'm saying, matter, right? I mean, I'm not a scientist, but you guys are old enough to understand matter, right? Yeah? Okay, so he's, he's creating stuff out of nothing. Okay, that goes against science because he's God. Okay, and that's why this miracle is such a big miracle because you prove that he can create. And remember, John 1, John said that Jesus was creator, right? And now he's proving that he's creator. Okay, and so it's a really big deal. And no one else can do it. Okay, the people, they see that it's a big deal. This is verse 14. Even after they've seen all these miracles, it says, Therefore, now that they've seen this sign, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Now, this statement does not say, Truly, this is the Messiah that has come into the world. We think this is talking about the prophet in Deuteronomy, I think, 1915. Okay, but... If you go back and you remember the questioning of John the Baptist, who did the religious leaders think the prophet was? Did they think that was the same person as the Messiah? It indicated that they didn't. It indicated that the Jewish leaders did not think that the, the prophet from Deuteronomy and the Messiah were the same person. This, I think, further gives proof of that. Um, because later on, and we're going to see it in a little bit, but later on in verses 30 and verse 42 of John 6, it says as a whole they didn't believe that he was the Messiah, this group. Okay? And so they don't believe he's the Messiah, but they believe that he's this prophet that comes. And so Wilkin, uh, Bob Wilkins says this would be like believing that Jesus is God but not believing that he's a Savior. You know what I mean? It's like, oh yeah, I know Jesus is God, but I'm, I'm not believing him as, as my Savior. You know what I mean? So like they may think, they're basically saying this guy is a great man. This guy is the prophet. But they're not saying he's my, he's my savior. He's not giving me life. You know, and, and that we're going to see later on that they think that. And we can, I guess I can scroll down there and look at it, but we're going to look at it soon enough. Um, but basically they just, they just keep questioning him throughout this whole thing. And they're like, well, what? And literally in verse 30, just look at verse 30. Okay, these guys... So they say, so they said to him, talk, they said to Jesus, What sign are you going to do for us that we may see and believe you? What work are you going to perform? What do you just do? Like they're literally following him because of his works. And they want a greater work to prove that he's actually from God, God. Like he's God, God. Like he's Messiah. Like they want this greater work. Um, and that doesn't mean that some of these people aren't believing. I think some of them are. But just as a group, that they're spokesmen at least. They're, uh, they're not believing it. It goes on in verse 42, talks about it a little bit more. But 
Um, these guys think that he's some great guy. He's the prophet. He has authority maybe even, but they're not trusting in him as Messiah yet. Um, and we'll talk about that more later on. The point is, though, that Jesus is provider, and he provided. And uh, the ability to provide is not limited by quantity, okay? And it's not limited by, um, I guess, quantity again, but the matter that he has. It's not like God's like, okay, I'm, I've got to use you know, this dirt to make something else. Like, I've got to have something here to make some bread with. It's like, no, I can just make it out of thin air. Okay, I don't need anything because I'm God. That's, that's Jesus talking. And so what's the impact for us? Okay, if we know that Jesus does give us or at least allow trials and tests in our life, I think that's important. I think it's important to note that He can give those because He understands it. He's giving it to you for a reason. Okay, um, if it's not for discipline, consequence, those kind of things. It's also important to, the, to know that He knows what He's going to do beforehand. He knows how it's going to end. He knows what's going to happen. Okay, that can allow us to run to Christ and then know that He's the provider. Okay, and He will provide. Uh, Philippians 4.19 says... Uh, and my God will supply all of your needs according to His riches and glory. Uh, he's talking to the Philippians who uh, were giving to the church, or well, they're giving to a different church, right? And so He says, "You guys are faithful in giving; therefore, God's going to provide for you because He can." Matthew six thirty three. Okay, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's a provision passage. So, if you're seeking the kingdom of God, He will provide for you. Okay, and so God does provide; He can provide. Um, and so, knowing that. We should run to Jesus with our cares, with our problems, with our worries, with our trials, our tests. We should run to Jesus. And when we do, when we do run to Jesus in tests, that's going to be the right response, right? Because we're going to be tempted within that trial and test to not run to Jesus. We're going to be tempted to rely on ourselves, tempted to rely on somebody else, tempted to not trust God and do it our own way. That, those are the temptations that we're going to have. Uh, whenever we're tested or tried. It doesn't matter how big or small the test is. Like Sometimes we get like little tests and little trials that we can do on our own. And then we do it on our own. And then we're not relying on God in that. And um, later on down the road, it's going to be a little bit harder to rely on God. Whereas if we rely on Him in everything, that's going to get easier uh, and be better for us in the long run. So uh, He's a tester. He's a knower. He's a provider. All those things mean that we should run to Him in trials and tests of our life. Thanks for joining us for True to the Bible podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this lesson. If you have any questions about this lesson or any of the other True to the Bible podcasts, don't hesitate to contact us at hunter.davis at stillwaterbible.org. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope that you join us for our next lesson.